Hi, I'm Peggy. And I'm Dave. And this is Ant. Hey, Dave, how are you today? I'm great. How are you? Oh, great is a good answer. Normally, trying to talk myself into yeah, it. Yeah, normally you're just like, oh, I'm good. I'm okay. But great. That's awesome. Feel great today. Good. Good. Thanks. So actually, um, we don't have a lot of time for small talk today because there was some breaking news that you wanted to talk about um, of concerning the Affordable Care Act. And we just want to flag that for our listeners um, and then go into our podcast, right? Yeah, that's right. So we're recording this on Wednesday, the evening of Wednesday, December 18th. And the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals in Texas just issued a long-awaited decision on the constitutionality of the Affordable Care Act. And they concluded that the individual mandate is unconstitutional. Um, This upholds a lower court judge's finding um, in which he declared the entire Affordable Care Act, therefore essentially null and void. Um, Interestingly, though, the appeals court, the Fifth Circuit, um, while finding the individual mandate unconstitutional, um, which is consistent with the lower judge's finding, did not draw any conclusions actually about what that means for the rest of the law. Um, and, and for those of you who followed this along closely over the years, the individual mandate has no practical effect anymore because um, all of the penalties for not complying with it were eliminated a few years ago um, when the uh, when the Trump administration um, effectively regulated it out of existence. So, um, the the ruling at this point, Peggy, and it's, you know, I haven't had a chance to go through the opinion yet. Um, and I'm really just sort of reading what, um, what some legal analysts are saying about it. It appears the primary effect of this is that um, it will simply delay, most likely, the Supreme Court actually getting the Affordable Care Act's constitutionality heard before it. Because Uh, What the Fifth Circuit did was ask the trial judge now to go back and reassess what the impact of the individual mandate being unconstitutional is. They seem to suggest, from what I'm reading, that his initial interpretation that the entire law therefore falls is overbroad and are encouraging him to go back over it in a more refined analysis and to render render a further opinion at that time. So it'll be interesting to see what happens next. But as a practical matter today, nothing is different beyond the fact that a federal appeals court has upheld the trial court decision. But everyone who just signed up for insurance on the exchanges or who has insurance through the exchanges will continue to have it. And no matter what happens um, when the uh, trial trial judge renders his final opinion, this will ultimately find its way to the Supreme Court and be heard there. And that's when we'll finally get clarity on this. But we're looking at likely years more litigation as a result of this decision. Right. So this is kind of a, we're playing a long game here and not, not a short sprint. Nope. There is not going to, we're not going to have clarity on this for a very long time. And meanwhile, you know, the, the practical effect of all of this legal posturing, um, is one issue. And then the the other issue is the fact that the Affordable Care Act has become increasingly entrenched just in how the health system functions as a whole. And so it's very hard to just sort of unplug what has happened since uh, the Affordable Care Act became law and say, all right, it's not law anymore and everything changes. Uh, you know, health insurance companies, health systems, doctors, a, a lot of 
a lot of players in the healthcare industry have organized their existence around the existence of this law. Uh, so, you know, I, I think it's a highly complex um, issue, both legally and practically. And we'll, we'll continue to, to monitor this. And uh, we may come back, Peggy, in a week or two with, with a new podcast that specifically looks at this and tries to, tries to analyze the long-term impact. Uh, but I, I think right now the best thing we can do is just let people know the decision has happened. We haven't had a ton of time to review it. We want to be thoughtful before we give any more guidance. So everything I'm saying, please take it with a caveat that this is based on about 20 minutes of analysis because I only learned about the decision about 20 minutes before we started recording. Uh, and and rest assured that, that we're going to stay on top of it, you primarily, because uh, this is definitely your wheelhouse. But um, Sadly. Yeah. Well, hey, I'm, I'm thankful for it. <laughs> Sadly, I'm the guy who gets to read these opinions. But um, no, we will, we will absolutely keep people up to date and uh, provide more information either through the podcast or through our newsletters, uh, which um, we, we have, we've not, I've not, we've not been as regular with them the last several weeks as we would like to be, but on any major issue, we'll certainly push stuff out uh, in writing as well. And if you want to subscribe to our newsletter, please go to our website and do that. Ampedlife.org. Yes. So today's podcast, uh, switching gears a little bit, although they are kind of related in advocacy, the realm of advocacy, is the application process for the 2020 NAAOP Fellow. Um, the, you know, last year we talked, actually this is the third year now that we're talking about this. Um, this week NAAOP announced its 2020 Fellowship Program. Um, and in this podcast, we're going to review what the Fellowship Program's goals are, who's eligible to apply, and give you all of the information that you'll need to know about the application itself and the application process. That's right. And um, just so, again, Peggy and I always try to be very clear about our, our uh, affiliations. I previously was on the board of NAAOP. I actually just stepped off that board of directors. Um, so this is no longer an organization that I am on the board of, but I fully support um, the NAAOP Fellowship and NAAOP as a whole. It's a wonderful organization that's doing fantastic work on behalf of uh, both patients and uh, the people who take care of them, focus specifically in the world of uh, legislation and advocacy. So wh what, are the, what are the fellowship's goals and what's the key information about the fellowship? So fellows will learn about prosthetic and orthotic policy and advocacy. Um, they'll also learn about how NAAOP and other organizations like AOPA and ABC and uh, AAOP and BOC, there's a whole alphabet soup. And if you're interested in learning about those organizations, look up the alphabet soup podcast that we did several years ago. But you learn about how NAAOP and other organizations function on behalf of the ONP community. You'll also learn about broader rehabilitation and disability policy and advocacy environments and then how these issues are dealt with at both a federal and a state level. Um, one of the highlights of the fellowship is who you get to work with if you are selected to be the fellow. You'll be working closely with NAAOP General Counsel Peter Thomas. Um, we've interviewed Peter, uh, a good friend of the podcast and a great friend to the Lim Law Slim Difference community. If you want to learn more about Peter and his background, we encourage you strongly to listen to episode 72 
where we interviewed him. And Fellows will be working with Peter at his law firm, the Powers Law Firm. Um, it's a 10-week paid fellowship, $500 a week in Washington, D.C., starting June 1st of 2020 and ending on August 7th. And as NAAOP did last year, uh, they will be selecting two fellows in 2020. In the inaugural year, one fellow was selected last year, or actually this year. Uh, they, they expanded to two fellows, and they're going to continue with two fellows in 2020. Every time I hear 2020, I just smile. That's completely unrelated, but... <laughs> Um, so who's eligible? Uh, there are some required elements to applying to be an NAAOP fellow. Um, first one is applicants must use a custom fabricated orthosis or prosthesis. Um, basically, you know, they want somebody who's actually living the life of the individual that they're going to learn to advocate for and serve. Um, they must have an interest in public health policy and in advocacy. Um, they're really looking for people who are going to become strong leaders for the community kind of in the, the next generation. Um, you must develop an interest in advancing OMP care or de demonstrate, I'm sorry, must demonstrate an interest in advancing OMP care as well. So not only advocacy through policy, but advocating within the, the industry itself to really push the boundaries and limits on, on, on care for the end user. Um, must have excellent writing, speaking, and analytical skills. Uh, those are the required elements. Now, Dave, there are some preferred elements, um, and those include a college or postgraduate degree or enrolled to receive a college degree. So if you are just a college, just in quotes, a college student have not yet received your degree, but if you're actively enrolled, you can still apply for this opportunity. Um, they, they're looking for somebody who already has significant knowledge about the healthcare system. They're looking for somebody who is interested in um, and uh, truly understands uh, U.S. federal and state political systems. So you, you need to have a background. They want you to have a background on kind of how all of these different legislative bo bodies and policies and rulings all work together to impact the community. Um, and the goal of developing a career in public policy, advocacy, law, government, healthcare, or orthotics and prosthetics. Yep. And um, the, you know, I, I can tell you because I've, I've been fortunate enough to see the applicant pool the last few years. There have been some incredibly strong applicants over the last few years. And um, we have seen, uh, we've seen that the people who are applying tip, all do have um, both the required and virtually all of the preferred elements, most applicants. So um, don't be scared away if you don't have every element. Um, you know, this is, uh, it, it, you certainly need the required ones. The preferred elements, um, you know, are, are nice to haves. Uh, but if someone's really, really strong in, in the required uh, and you don't have all of the preferred, please don't not apply because of that. Well, even um, Dave, even if yeah. you're listening to this podcast right now and you don't have, you know, all of the preferred, you can do some research between now and when the application is due on January 31st and really, you know, bone up on your, your um, understanding of how federal and state policies work. You can learn more about the healthcare system. 
Um, so those are some things that you can do if if you really are interested in this opportunity and you feel like you're weak in those areas, you can definitely do a little bit of research ahead of time. Great point, Peggy. Thanks for thanks for flagging that. Um, really, really accurate. Um, so the application itself, when's the deadline? Midnight Eastern time, January 31st of 2020. Where do you submit the application? You submit it to fellowship at naaop.org. That's fellowship at n like Nancy, A-A-O-P, like Paul, dot org. The selection announcement will be made on March 4th of 2020, and you can download the application at NAAOP's website, which is naaop.org. For all of this information, we're, we're saying it all, but if you're interested in seeing the information, uh, please check out our show notes. Every piece of this is listed there. Yes, all of the links are going to be there. Um and you can get to the application through our website. So um, in summary, you know, Dave, this is a really a fantastic opportunity for, for the fellows in the limb loss, limb difference community. This is just a great opportunity. They're looking for two people who can, you know, really show the dedication and really work towards making some true, you know, groundbreaking change in, in policy for the limb loss, limb difference community. Um, it offers the chance to really influence policies that in fact and and affect the entire community. Um, and not only now, but maybe for years to come. Um, it's also this is a fantastic opportunity to get in the door. Um, you you can't shadow anybody better than Peter Thomas for for advocacy. And just to be able to put that on your resume in the future is a huge feather in your cap. Yep. And lastly, please remember, just spread the word to anybody in the community who you think might benefit from this. If you're not interested, but you know someone who you think is a fit, please pass the information on to them. It's a, it's a wonderful opportunity. And um, the more applicants, the more likely it is that we get people who are likely to have a significant influence in the limb loss, limb difference community for years to come. So uh, please be liberal in your spreading of this information. And, and having strong advocates for the community really does, it just makes everybody's life better, right? Because you, we need people in every different facet of care, including advocacy, not only your prosthetic providers, not only your doctors, um, but but people you know, in the, in the government areas and policy really working on our behalf as well. So especially with so much ambiguity on, on where healthcare might stand in the future, we need to make sure that, that when it comes to the limb loss, limb difference community, that, that those needs are going to be met. Well said, Peggy. I have nothing to add. All right. I think this is our last podcast before Santa comes, though. Correct, Dave? So I want to wish you a very happy holiday. You too, Peggy. I hope your Christmas is good. It will be. I've decided. <laughs> I have a five-year-old. It it's always good when you have a little kid. Yes, right? I'm, I, I agree. It, it's just seeing everything through his eyes. And, you know, I find myself getting excited that Santa's coming, even though I know that Santa has everything stashed in the basement. doesn't matter. I'm excited about it. So it'll well, be Well, and I... I will even share that my 14-year-old daughter, God bless her, who no longer believes in Santa Claus and who's a very cynical young woman sometimes, she will wake me up. She will insist that everyone wakes up at 7 a.m. 
and comes down for Christmas morning. So no one sleeps in. You know, most teenagers, they want to sleep in. Yeah. Certainly my kids still. It's like, let's get up early and let's celebrate. Oh, so, by, by 7 a.m., Dave, we're through the presents. I understand. Piles of wrapping paper and we're on our way to IHOP for breakfast. So <laughs> I was going to say, you're out the door already. <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah, well. That's the difference between five and 14, I guess. Hours of planning and wrapping and it all just, it implodes in my living room in about three minutes flat. I was just thinking this morning as I stood in my driveway bringing the garbage cans in and first calculating when do the garbage guys come relative to Christmas and thankfully this year, Christmas is on a Wednesday. My garbage guys come Thursday. So everything that's in my house will be out oh, thir- you you're know, lucky. the next day. But um, I was just thinking about how much stuff yeah. <laughs> there, there is and I have to get out there. So, But it's all good. It's, it's all good. Exactly. Good we could have worse problems than that. So I'll stick with that. Yes. All right, all right. Peggy. Great talking to you as you always. Too. And we'll talk um, soon. Yes, we will. All right. Bye. Bye.